The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Today. My name's Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst Mickey Mordek. G'day, Mickey. G'day, Gaurav. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. My dog, it just won't leave me alone. Uh... That was just perfectly done. That's all right, so, Mickey. I'm just. I'm hoping he doesn't. He doesn't do it. But because uh, I've. I've tried. I've tried to g- give him some food. He's just not leaving me alone. We um, just give everyone some warning that Mickey has a little puppy in the house, so expect some some random barking occasionally. Sometimes it's a dog. Sometimes it's Mickey. You never know. <laughs> all right. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna open the back door. Okay. Meantime, um, I'm gonna have a chat with Nathan while you're away. Okay? All right, just... Nathan and oh, and by the way, we've also got research director Nathan Bell. Hey, Nathan. Hi, Gaurav. I guess that's what happens when you're in lockdown for a couple of days. You start uh, barking up the walls, right? <laughs> it's East Bentley, mate, I tell you. It's, it's tough down in Melbourne at the moment. <laughs> is that where he is, isn't it? Locked it's up, some, yep. Sounds like a fancy suburb. We, we must be yeah, paying Mickey too up. much if he's living in Bentley. Not too far from the beach. Oh, nice. He's got a good. All right, well, um, this is actually our small cap special. And when Mickey returns, uh, hopefully... Well, Sam, yeah. Oh, now. he's back. All right, yeah, All right. I'm, just, I'm just lurking in the background. Okay, stay there, stay looking, and don't and stop barking because we've got our small cap special, Mickey. This is the one everyone's been waiting for. Nathan forced upon us reluctantly, so we've all gone off and bought our most interesting small cap ideas. I think we all got two each, right? I hope we have two each, right, boys? Yes. Yes. Yeah, good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So, if you're listening to this, you're in for a treat. You got you got Mickey barking, and you got us. Uh, <laughs> you got us spouting out all these small cap ideas from everywhere. Now, we'll, we'll get right into it. Mickey, why don't you begin, since we don't know when your dog's going to start up again. <laughs> what's what's your first small cap idea? Hang on. Before we get into it, actually, I want to give a bit of – let's just have a bit of a chat about why someone would invest in small caps. I keep hearing this argument that there's structural inefficiency in the small cap market, that small caps grow into big caps, um, that small caps are inherently um, higher growth. Um, Mickey, let's begin with you. What do you make of those ideas? Do you buy them? Do you invest in small caps heavily in your own portfolio? Uh, no, I don't. Well, I mean, it depends how you define a small cap, I guess, because uh, I guess everyone's got different uh, definitions. And so, uh, well, I'd consider, you know, probably like a micro cap would be, you know, something under a hundred million. Uh, but I mean, depends on how you define it really so uh i don't don't know how how do you define it so some people say it's anything under a billion um Mm. so yeah i guess it has to has to be some definition there so i would say most of the things that i look at would tend to be you know um things that we can recommend to members and that would be uh, 200 million or so i think is what we tend to work with at ii Uh, anything under 200 million we tend to let slide unless it's an exceptional idea yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think also that's just, um, well, the thing about those businesses that have probably gotten to that size is that they've, they tend to have something to them and mm. uh, they, they have some sort of business model. Maybe they have 
some competitive advantage, something that's working in their favour and uh, that's helped them get to that point. And I think it, the smaller you go, the, the more kind of, um, you know, detritus uh, that, there, that there is basically. You've got probably more, uh, you know, management teams that you don't know or maybe you just don't have, aren't of the calibre, uh, don't have the governance structures in place. So uh, I guess just having a bigger company means that hopefully that, you know, you're, you're fishing in a pond where just the quality is going to be a little bit higher. Uh, but there's still plenty of room to grow, um, you know, for businesses that are, you know, um, less than a billion. So, yeah, that's kind of where, where I, where, where I would concentrate. Um, Nate, yeah. what about you? Do you spend a lot of time looking at small caps and do you recommend, uh, for the hordes of people who approach you on the streets and ask you for stock ideas, do you recommend small cap ideas to them? Look, I think for most of our members uh, who are retirees, they're probably just not interested in them. They're particularly interested in uh, dividends normally, but they also want pretty steady businesses. So, um, you know, they don't want to invest a lot in small caps. The, the The reason I like them, though, is because, you know, I'm still away, a while away from retirement. And uh, I guess the most important thing for me about buying small caps is I don't think you just... I think there's an assumption sometimes that just because you're going down to the small end of the market, you're taking on lots and lots more risk. And that's not what it's really about for me. It's it's about trying to find good quality businesses that have a, you know, maybe they're not profitable today, but there's a very clear path to profitability. Um, you understand the business model. And what's really important to me is that you find a lot more companies where the person who runs the business has the biggest shareholding in the business and people are probably sick of hearing me talk about that, but that insider ownership to me is just extremely important. And I think it matters as much in small cap land as it does anywhere uh, because of, of the risk of being a small business. And I mean, probably to me, the the one that members probably most know that is one I'm associated with at least is um, a stereotypical uh, stock. Uh, I guess I'm looking for is the nanosonics situation where there's one, I read about it from, um, actually, Alan Gray wrote about it of all um, fund managers. I mean, normally oh, they're wow. the real, okay. yeah. you know, highly discounted, deep value stuff. And here they had this little tiny stock I'd never heard of and said it's got a, a nice little business in, um, you know, razor, razor blade model, which we're very familiar with from, um, you know, Cockley or ResMed or any of these sort of companies. And what it, um, the thing that really caught my attention was when, uh, the chief of marketing at Cochlear came across to be the CEO of of Nanosonics, and mm. to me that told me that, that there was a real business here. There was, um, you know, and again, I, I'm you know I don't know these people personally, but to give up the top job marketing job at Cochlear, which would be a pretty good job, it's a very easy sale to sell a Cochlear implant. I assume it would pay pretty well, and I'm guessing there'd be a few options in there as well. So to give all that up to take on the Nanosonics Nanosonics role. And given the background of nanosonics, it actually it actually had been around a long time, but it was just on the cusp of breaking even. So it just had a few of those boxes ticked or, or about to be ticked that I really looked for. And, um, you know, I, I never expected it was going to go up 10 times as it has. And it's probably gargantuanly overvalued to be my guess at the moment. Uh, but that's the sort of, uh, you know, we call it optionality. Um, you get with these businesses, you just never know how good they can work out. And you only need one or two of them to do what nanosonics has done to um, you know, carry the returns of your whole portfolio and if you make lots of other mistakes. Yeah, I, I think um, investors sometimes get a bit carried away 
by the, the, the success of the Nanasonics and forget that uh, investing in small caps, um, it's not an automatic, just because you're buying a small company, there's no guarantee it's one day going to be a large business. And there's no guarantee that it is um, under the radar or that no one's discovered it or that it's mispriced. And I think too many investors approach small caps thinking that they're the only ones looking at these stocks and no one else is. That just is not true. From my experience with small caps, it's a highly inefficient market, but where people who have um, knowledge know that the company is really, really well. And if you don't know the businesses back to front and inside out, you're the mug at the table. And no one knows that until you know they're sitting on the stock at 50% down and wondering what went wrong. And that's when it hits you that you actually you didn't know the business as well as you thought you did. Um, so it, I, I think I find it very hard, actually, because of the huge information asymmetries in small caps. And I, and I just think that large caps sometimes, people forget that just because lots of people cover a stock, it doesn't mean that that stock is particularly well researched or well understood. And um, me and Johnny always talk about um, Apple in this regard, you know, because we're both um, um, fam uh, portfolios in, in our families both own Apple stock. And um, Apple is the most covered business in the world, the biggest company. Everyone covers it. It's got something like uh, 200 analysts on that stock. And yet it's been structurally mispriced and misunderstood for years and years and years. And I would argue only now is the is is the true value of that business really um, being appreciated. So the number of analysts covering the stock, the size of the stock really doesn't tell you anything about um, how well it's understood or, or, or how inefficient the market is. So I, I think if you're in small caps just because no one else is, you, you're probably in there for the wrong reasons. I, I do agree with Nate that the idea in small caps is the same as the idea in big caps is, is that you want to uncover great businesses and you can do that, you know, regardless of, business size that that's no cap on whether a business is great or not so just just be careful the reasons you're when fishing we came out of on. sorry Gaurav, when we came out of the gfc the as we just had model portfolios then but i remember we had them filled with blue chip stocks because they were just so cheap i mean yeah that's right. 20 bucks and you know aristocrat and all the rest of them but picked all the right stocks at the time and for me there was just no need to go take extra risk with any small caps because the, the value in the, the big blue chips was just so extraordinary and i'm not sure if i'll ever see valuations like that again in my life as what we saw uh, during the gfc um, but it was an extraordinary period and so you know it was, it was just risk reward you if you're going to be able to make four or five times with macquarie group or aristocrat or whatever it was there was just no need to get involved with the small caps you got extra safety if you like because they were well-established businesses and and then you got the dividends as well as they recovered and i remember i remember at the time seeing if we upgraded asx for i think it would have been like eight dollars or something twelve dollars something like that i remember thinking yeah look it all looks good i know it's a good business but you know i want something more exciting i didn't i didn't you know study and do all this work so i could buy asx and it was really hubris um and youth <laughs> i think that stopped me from from buying a great business at a great price and uh, i think yeah the point i just want to make is that that's a silly thing to do um but with all that being said i mean uh, you know when i first recommended csl i think it was 33 or 32 dollars i remember thinking if it gets to 40 bucks in the next two years i think this was 2009 <laughs> 
that would be a pretty good outcome. Like I wasn't thinking it was going to go to 40, 45 times earnings and grow earnings at, you know, probably 17% a year since then and go to $300. Um, so I think this period has been exceptional too, just the impact of low interest rates has had on these valuations. That was, uh, so I, I joined about the time that you first recommended CSL and that was the first stock I bought as a professional stock analyst and I still hold it to this day. Haven't sold it, <laughs> I haven't sold a single share. I ought to buy you a coffee or something. Uh, the pain of the salt in the wound for the person who didn't <laughs> bought any. <laughs> and it was exactly uh, that same thing you said about ASX, right? I just didn't, yeah. didn't see the upside that big. The business just got better and better as it got bigger. Yeah. Well, this is a thing, this is like what I'm coming to, a conclusion that I'm coming to is we, we also forget like, you know, businesses in Australia look big when they get a $10 billion market cap, but it, by global standards now, that's actually not even that big. And, you know, it's so easy for businesses to go global now as well. Uh, mm. And this is like, people were looking at Afterpay going, and, you know, and I don't, I don't think, well, I mean, we definitely have mixed views on Afterpay. Maybe mm. that's a topic for another discussion. It is a topic. We've had a lot of discussion about that <laughs> internally, yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, people looking at that going, oh, you know, it's a $3, $4, 5000000000 billion business. That's ridiculous. Uh, but is it? I mean, you know, by global standards, that's a pretty small business. And if you can go global and take your business global, then, you know, the, 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 it's a, and you've got Amazon, for example, still growing. You know, this is one of the biggest companies in the world, still growing at really fast rates. So just goes to show that whole you know, notion of, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. Well, you know, but they can grow really fast for a really long time. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting the experience you've had, Mickey, because I came in uh, to Intelligent Investment in 2006 and generally the broader lesson you learnt from Australian companies going overseas was they yeah, usually yeah. failed. And so it was really, you, you know, you're always very sceptical of mm. a company that went overseas, but uh, you've got to really be careful about making those broad assumptions because, the healthcare industry is a great one. Just we have all the number one players uh, basically in some of those industries and they're extremely profitable and they just continue to grow at rapid rates. And also the other thing that's changed in more recent times is just the, the digital nature of the new businesses means that despite the gargantuan size, you can include Chinese company Tencent, for example, the growth rates have actually got faster and they've mm. just got massive companies and we're just never used to that. It's always the... Um, supposedly the bigger you get, the lower the returns and the lower the growth, but that just hasn't been the case lately. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it also just makes you think about the types of companies that you, you invest in. Like if, if a business can't go after a big market or it can't go global, then, you know, you're probably, I don't know, maybe that explains why there's such a big disparity in terms of, you know, valuations because it's just like the prize is so much bigger for some of these companies that, you know, aren't they? Maybe that's where... You know, but I guess everyone's thinking like that as well. So um, I don't well, let's know. Get, let's get to the prize now, Jen. <laughs> let's get to the prize now. Um, Mickey, uh, after saying I don't know, let's begin with you. We've got uh, two small caps each. So we'll give. Um, we'll spend a bit of time on each one, but not too long, maybe just a couple of minutes on each one. Um, yeah. What do you have yeah. for us, Mickey? Well, I definitely don't want to spend too long on either of mine because I don't really know that much about them. Oh, well, um, by all means, bring but, it on. <laughs> but uh, so these are definitely not recommendations and I just emphasize them kind of these are just small uh, personal positions for myself. Um, it's kind of more of a, just a, a wait and see what happens type of 
positions. But so the first one would be uh, PKS. Uh, so it's a tiny business. Uh, it's, I think it's about a $33 million market cap. Uh, and basically, what's, what's this, the stock code, Mickey? Uh, PKS. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as you'd expect, uh, funnily enough. So, um, yeah, so Pacific Knowledge Systems. So this um, was a business that uh, basically sells software to hospitals. Um, and so obviously hospitals have a need for, you know, greater efficiency and reducing the workload of, you know, clinical staff, uh, you know, and, and, and getting decisions right, basically. So they've got this product called Ripple Down, and that automates um, the human you know, decision-making process in um, lots of scenarios. So I guess it just removes bias and it removes error. Uh, you know, it increases efficiency uh, basically throughout, you know, these health healthcare organizations. So that's pretty much what the software does. Um, there, there was a recent merger with a company called Pavilion Health, uh, which I think from everything I've read is a, is a complementary uh, product suite, uh, so just helps, I guess, you know, having those conversations with, um, you know, those organisations. Um, the retention is is basically a hundred percent based on the prospectus, uh, and uh, you know they've been winning quite a quite a few clients uh, as well. So, uh, and and I think the the most important thing here is, you know, I I haven't used the product. Uh, I don't. I haven't spoken to any customers that have used the product, but. Um, so, so this is a very you know small position uh, for me, but it's it's trading at a very reasonable price. There is one broker who covers it, and they're expecting um, you know two and a half cents of earnings per share in twenty twenty two, and so with a with a sixteen cent share price at the moment uh, for a software as a service business, um, you can see plenty of upside if 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 the market you know, starts to acknowledge it or starts to look at it a little bit differently. So, yeah, I, I would say it's very speculative. Um, and uh, But, yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty cheap as well, um, particularly for a software business with, with these kinds of stats. So, what, which, um, what problem do they solve for the hospital, Mickey? Do you know? Well, so I think, I think it's basically it's a decision-making software system. So it um, basically you, you put in rules and you say, so if this happens, then hmm. do this. Or, you know, if, if, if the patient presents with this, then do this. Or, you know, uh, basically hmm. it's, a, it's a rule and decision-making uh, software system. Um, and you can write in whatever rules that you want, basically. So you get a more standardized approach, I guess, to care. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I guess that's, that's useful. It's a pretty simple piece of software, but, um, you know, it seems to, seems to do the job. And like I said, retention has been pretty good. So, uh, they're in lots of different countries as well. Um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll just have to see how that pans out, but I think, you know, um, it's got, got some good ingredients. There's things to like there. So, uh, is it, is it 10% of the Mordic portfolio? <laughs> No, this is a a one percent position, so okay. that tells you uh, basically how how much I uh, know about it and how comfortable I am with it. That's Dog sorry, doesn't just... like it. <laughs> Did the, yeah, it doesn't like the short case. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard to of this? To be honest, it's probably more compelling than than my bull case. So. Have you heard of this, um, Nathan? Have you heard this one before? No, I haven't. Mickey mentioned it to me, but he's also always mentioning some harebrained stock um, of all sorts of sizes. But I did have a, a quick look at this, and it is interesting. 
they took on this other business and bought it for a really, really cheap price. And uh, that company brings a lot of um, cash flow to the company. So it kind of removes a lot of the um, the cap raising risk and financing risk that the company would have had without it. And as yeah. a joint business, they seem to be much better placed now to, to sell their software. I, I think sometimes with software businesses, people forget that actually – the sales function is really important, just as important as the engineering function behind uh, the software engineering function behind the scenes. And um, to build out your your sales team and actually get software installed is a is a, quite a difficult task that requires a lot of res- resources. So um, to me, it looks as though um, the merged PKS now is able to harness some of those resources to get out and actually sell some software. Um, so yeah, it's a nice one, Mickey. Um, thanks yeah. for mentioning it. Well, uh, yeah, and I guess so. I guess the, the other thing was just the price. So, because if you if you if you look at how, you know, uh, like the cash flow that it's meant to throw off, according to this broker, you know, you're looking at potentially two and a half million, two mm. two and a half million free cash flow. So you know, with well, that you know, most software businesses now are trading at what. 40, 50 times free cash flow. So, you know, maybe a thousand times free cash flow. Uh, I mean, this could be a $2 billion business by tomorrow. <laughs> uh, cue, cue the not, dog barking. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I think it's relatively cheap, but obviously not a recommendation to anybody. And, um, you know, definitely don't, uh, yeah. All right, let's do, let's do, let's do one at a time. Um, Nate, why don't you um, put one out as well? Okay, so uh, the first one I'll do is Molus. So uh, I just declare up front that I own Molus and I also own SmartPay, which we'll talk about yeah, in a few minutes. Spoiler and, alert, we're supposed to keep it a surprise. Yeah, now. I know, but I couldn't be bothered mentioning it again. Okay. So I'll get it all out at once. So, uh, so bear in mind I bought Molus at, uh, back in, uh, must be March or April when the, the market was way down. And so the investment case is sort of assumed that I'm buying it at the time. So... Um, the share price got uh, right down to $1.26, I think was the bottom. Um, now, that was down from nearly $7 um, not all that long ago. And when it was priced at $7, it was expected to do about $0.30 cents in earnings per share. So not a crazy valuation by 2019-20 standards. Um, Molus is essentially like a small Macquarie group. And it's basically a home for people that, have worked, you know, just slogging out the hours at UBS or the other big investment banks who actually want to come and work for a smaller firm and actually have a lot of equity in the business. So that that's the reason why I haven't recommended it. It's just the, there's a big internal shareholding from the people who work in the business and it makes it extraordinarily illiquid and just too small for us. And um, so I, I really love that, that part of it. This is a people who are highly motivated, very smart, who have had experience in investment banks before, who who really know what they're doing and have great networks. And uh, people I've spoken to have talked about the culture in there where, uh, you know, often you get, um, I guess, ridiculed if you leave before midnight. So this is not a place that I have the energy to work in anymore, but they regularly work till one or two in the morning. These are people who are highly motivated and highly incentivized because of the shareholding in the business. And so I, I really like that, and that's really what's made Macquarie uh, succeed over the years. And this is just a much smaller version. Uh, it's, it's in a much more embryonic phase in the sense that when Macquarie came out of the GFC, it had to essentially shut down all those satellite 
businesses had been raking in fees and essentially they became a fund manager and it worked out extraordinarily well, which is the reason it went from 20 bucks to I think it was what, 155 or something over the next decade. And my view was that Molas uh, was already starting to do that. They were starting to build their funds management business. And that's a business uh, that works really, really well. If you look around the world and you see why Goldman Sachs has essentially failed since the GFC and why companies like Brookfield uh, have, have uh, become the, the best known uh, entities in the financial space overseas, it's because of that funds management approach and not just relying on corporate activity, uh, which Milo still does some. And you probably see on the Finn Review, they've organised a few deals recently, which is good news. So the way I was thinking about this business was that I, I really like the culture uh, and I like the fact that the people who are running the business who are the biggest investors in it. And the share price had fallen, I think, from top to bottom, about 85%. And it also had cash to invest. So in the same way that I thought that 360 Capital uh, was perfectly positioned for a, a big downturn, we'd be able to go and buy all these distressed assets, which would produce incredible returns over the next cycle. Um, you know, models were similarly positioned with cash ready to go. So the fall, the 85% fall in the, in the stock didn't make a lot of sense for a start, but you're starting at such a low position. And let's assume it was going to do 30 cents per share this year had we had no COVID. Um, you know, my guess is if, if this business is successful, then uh, why can't it do um, 50 cents or 60 or 70 cents per share over the next five, six, seven years as the funds management business grows? And you put that on 20 times earnings and you're up into you know, $12 or $13 a share. Um, now, that's obviously the, the bull case, but I just thought you're well covered on the downside because the share price have fallen so far. And there's a really big bull case that we've already seen work out for Macquarie. So if it follows the same playbook, uh, then it's going to be another big winner over the next decade. Uh, so that was basically it. Hey, Nath, yeah. um, I've read uh, interviews with the founder, Ken Molus, before, and um, he's been very clear that he wanted to um, build um, a, a business different from the typical Wall Street bank, um, and culture has always been really important to him. What's the relationship? But, but I think Molus is also listed on the New York Stock Exchange as well, if I'm not um, mistaken. Uh, do you know about the relationship between that American listed entity and the Australian listed one and the involvement of the founder? Yep. So this is, uh, I don't actually know exactly the background, but I'm guessing this is how it happened, was that Ken Molus is quite famous for winning a, because Molus in the US, I think is fairly small. Um, compared to the you know the Goldman Sachs mm. and things of the world, and he ended up winning the I think was was it the Aramco, um, the big Saudi Arabian oh, oil company? Like okay. he won the corporate gig for that, which was just an astounding win yeah. uh, for, for such a small firm. Um, I, I think I've got that right, and <laughs> so that really put him on the map. And I don't know when it must have been a fair while ago, but he must have decided to have an Australian arm. And they seeded the business. So uh, that's another reason why the stock's so illiquid is because Molus US owns, a big, I think it was about 30% of the shares. Oh, so um, okay. again, I haven't looked at the numbers for a while, but I think it was something like 60% of the shares were owned by either US Molus and the uh, people who work in the business in Australia. So again, that's why it's so illiquid. Uh, so that's the relationship. But I believe that uh, the US Molus is starting to um, produce its investment. I don't know whether it's going to pull the whole thing out, uh, but as uh, I can't remember what the reason was, but uh, but basically I expect over the next five years or whatever, then US Molus won't be 
anywhere near as large a shareholder if a shareholder at all. So it would be quite an independent Australian business, which is how it should be. Right, okay. I have heard. So does that also... mean that they can compete against each other at that point? Or? Oh. I'm not sure, but the, uh, the Australian firm really does stick to its um, knitting in Australia. The one thing that um, worries me a little bit is that it's trying to grow, and I think it's been reasonably successful from a very small base, in growing the Chinese uh, wealth part of its business in the sense yeah, that it's opened an mention. office in, I think it's Beijing or Shanghai maybe, and they've actually put a couple more people in there recently, and they're just getting Chinese investors to um, invest in their funds or do deals for them in Australia. Uh, it's, it's not you know it's not the be all and end all if it doesn't work out or something goes wrong but just the chinese tensions with australia and everyone around the world makes me a little bit nervous for any company that's got a lot of chinese exposure yeah a, f a friend of mine who works for an american hedge fund um uh, met up with him recently and he was telling me that um that molus in australia have cultivated um uh, that they've cornered the market for um uh, Chinese um, potential migrants into Australia um, who have to come to Australia with, uh, there's a rule where you have to pour in a couple of million dollars um, of investment to get to, to gain your, some special visa. And, and Moulders has become apparently the vehicle of choice for, for a lot of migrants wanting to apply for that visa application. And, and so he was saying it's actually um, a really good niche for Moulders because it, it, um, it, there's a continued um, inflow of funds all the time. And they tend to be very, very sticky uh, because they can't just uh, pull that money out because it needs to remain invested in Australia. And, and because they're, uh, they don't have any, the investors don't have any other ties to Australia, they don't really have anywhere else um, to put that money. Um, so he was uh, pretty glowing about how that, that part of the business has grown and, and talking about how sticky that customer base really was. And, and that, for me, it also just highlights just how entrepreneurial this business is. You know, they've gone out and built this little niche that probably no one else has really thought about or looked at. So I was impressed. That's what I like about the fact they've got money now. To be fair, it's unfortunately that asset prices have recovered so much across the board, but um, that may not be always the case. But just that, in, and Macquarie's done this too, right? They've got smart people and they've got money, so they go and find a niche and then they just put all the money into it and back them in and they do mm. really well. And Models is much smaller, so it doesn't need anywhere to put anywhere near as much money to work as the Macquarie Group. So that should be very beneficial for them. The Chinese link too is, uh, as long as um, you know things don't deteriorate too much, there's always, mm. Australia is always going to be a great destination, I would have thought, for rich Chinese people who are trying to get more of their money out of the country. Um, mm. There's a rule of law in Australia, your money's very well protected, good regulations, uh, although I'll complain about bank regulations any day you like, but that aside, um, you know, globally, it's a very safe place to put your money and it's a great place to live as well. Mm. Agreed. Oh, yeah. I think the dog agrees as well. <laughs> Strong buy, I thought he said. Yeah, I thought I got that too. Yeah, nice one. All right. Um, so my first idea is Experience Co., which is um, a business I flirted with kind of mentioning in the newsletter, but it's just, it's very small. So it's a $60 million business and it's had a really checkered history. So when it was listed, Experience Co., um, was really uh, mostly a, a skydiving business. So they actually, um, there's only two main skydiving companies that operate along um, the East Coast and, and um, Experience Co. owns one of those two, the, the larger one. So they have a, a really large market share in the skydiving market. And they also, I think they also listed with um, a far North Queensland business that operated tours to the, um, 
to the Great Barrier Reef and um, sort of ancillary uh, tourist tourist services um, that that come with um, people visiting the reef. So it listed with um, with those two planks, and then it went on this crazy acquisition binge where it just bought every kind of tourist business you can imagine, um, you know, ballooning, kayaking, uh, all these other uh, kind of things. It just it just bought everything. And, uh, of course, so that acquisition binge came to an end after too much debt became a problem and the whole business imploded. Um, it, it did all uh, did a, a dilutive cap raising. Uh, management got cleaned out. There's now new management in place, and they've got, I think, a really interesting recovery plan for the company. They're, they're selling off most of the rubbish that the former management bought, um, and they're trying to trim the business back to its core of, um, of, of skydiving, but they actually think that they're trying to improve it beyond that as well. So um, in, the previous, in the previous model, the company actually owned a lot of its fixed assets. So it's actually owned the planes, it owned the boats, um, and it owned the aircraft and the balloons that it used for ballooning. It owned all its assets. So it was a really asset-heavy business, and that meant it just had to get this constant stream of, of tourists popping, um, popping in. Uh, and if it didn't get utilization rates high, the profitability of the business was really poor. So one of the reasons it got in trouble was just because um, the the bushfires, drought, um, for some reason, tourists stopped coming to, to far north Queensland for a couple of years and tourist numbers fell. When you're operating this really asset-heavy business model, uh, you get into trouble really quick uh, and your debt can be a problem fast. And that's what happened. So the company now is actually in the process of selling off all those um all those heavy assets so they're selling off their planes and they're selling off they've already sold off a lot of their boats they have sold off um, their fixed wing aircraft and they've got some land holdings which i think they've held on to for now but they're, they're considering selling those as well so it's a really asset rich business and once they sell off those assets not only do they remove the debt burden so the debts come all the way down and, and I, I don't think this is a business where debt is a huge problem anymore um, but once you remove that, you actually change your your business model. Instead of having a really high fixed cost, you can you can operate on a variable cost basis. So that means when the tourist season is really big, you can go out and hire more planes and cater for those tourists. And when it's when it's small, um, your cost base flexes, and you don't actually lose as much money in a low season. And fortunately, it did this just before coronavirus, as in a response to the bushfire haze, where tourists stopped coming to Australia. So it had to act then. So it's been relatively well prepared for COVID. I mean, shares have been smashed because there's no inbound tourism at all. But the business model has survived because they've they've got this now flexible cost base, and there's still there's still further to go. The business still has um, a pretty large um, asset base that it's yet to sell, and the shares have been completely smashed, as you expect for a sort of a, a business at the coal um, coal faced end of the the tourist market. Uh, it, it Shares currently trade for about $0.10, cents and it's got $0.16 cents of hard assets. And, and these ha- assets should convert to cash pretty easily. Um, there is always a market for planes um, and and land. So I, I'm expecting that the company should be able to sell its, its remaining assets. The new business model um, will mean that it's a lot more resilient. Um, and when you think about the actual quality of the business, Skydiving actually offers really good returns on capital. They earn 25% EBITDA margins on skydiving. Um, very hard to compete because you can't just go and open a skydiving shop tomorrow. That really long history and legacy of um, you know, pushing people out of a plane and making sure they don't die is 
is really important. You know, people care about the experience you've you've got when you're doing a risky activity, and so the reputation is really important. And I think there's also advantage in being um, large. You can actually hook up with um, tour operators and and big um, larger travel companies. You can actually um, embed with them and get uh, and use them as an acquisition funnel in a way you can't really do as a smaller operator. So I actually think um, the business can is capable of earning very good returns on capital, even better now that a lot of the assets have been shed. And you can buy it at a, at a really cheap price. I think the caveat here is that um, it's going to be probably two years before we end up with a normal tourist season. And until then, yeah, I don't think you're going to see much in the way of returns. So it's one for the patient, but it is interesting. I haven't bought it myself, but I have been looking at it and thinking about it. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, I own this, Gaurav, and do you I, own that? I didn't realize you owned it. Okay, yeah, I, I own it. So I think this is potentially a five or six bagger in the bull case. But yeah, I think I until, but you're just not going to get those huge earnings. Uh, when I say huge earnings, you're not going to get back to 2019 earnings. Uh, probably my guess is for at least three to four years. Yeah, uh, just because I think the international stuff's going to be very slow after um, what we're going through, and that's uh, even assuming we get people back on planes around the world at some point in the next couple of years. But uh, the other thing I'd say is at the moment, it's burning through a million dollars a month and it's in a good financial position for the next sort of 12 to 18 months. But if the recovery it takes longer than that, then my guess is then it has to raise capital, which will reduce some of the, um, definitely some of that upside. But what would be, a re um, what I was really excited about was Queensland, at least temporarily, reopened its borders because if you can go to the company's website and see where its locations are, and most of them are in Queensland, as you'd probably expect. And once we get, you know, Queensland's basically about just one of the very few places Australians are going to be travelling to over the next couple of years for a holiday. And I'm guessing after this COVID situation, there'll be plenty of people who want to throw themselves out of planes for the fun of it. And if we can at least just get those, um, they've already opened, reopened some of their uh locations in Australia and New Zealand, but if they can get them all reopened and at least covering their um, fixed costs and, and, you know, if it's just breaking even, at least it's bringing money in, the equipment's mm -hmm. being used, the business up and running, and then you don't have to worry about the debt situation or the financial position of the business. And then once the overseas tourists start coming, then you're going to see a massive jump, um, you know, in the profits at that point, the profit margins. And my guess is the profit margins uh, so if you look at the 2019 earnings and the underlying earnings, at least because there's a lot of write-offs in there, but just on the uh, the airplane stuff, then I assume my guess is the margins are going to be even higher than that in a few years. Let's say they get back to the same uh, number of people jumping out uh, because they've just taken a hatchet to costs, and so that's um, you know although they will have to include depreciated. They'll have to include, yeah, you're right. You, you, so you, you won't deal with the depreciation, but you do have to include leases for equipment now. Yep. So, so I think the margins will be higher. And um, and then there's I think there's going to be less competition as well. Yeah, I think um, that's a big point. Yep. Which means they can go and open up new locations uh, without any competition. So in an ultra ball case, this is, you know, it sounds silly to say, but it's possibly a seven or eight bagger, but it's going to take, four or five years, I would expect to, to see that. And you've got to go through uh, the, the valley of death uh, over the next 12 or 18 months. And that's really why the share price is where it is because no one knows how long it's going to be before uh, they can reopen their locations and we get past this COVID mess. Yeah, and, and, and you make a guaranteed the... eight burger. 
Not well, guaranteed. It's either it's either a zero or a or a, a sort of a yeah. I had sort of five to seven bagger as well. But I think a zero is a possibility in in this business because they have been pretty successful at selling assets and they've still got some left to sell. But the fact that the um, asset sale program has slowed down so considerably might tell you that they're having a bit of trouble selling some of their kit at the moment. And I think they still need to do that to to maintain um, the balance sheet. But, I think uh, we'll get a much we'll have a better idea of things come summer because I assume yes, that's when yes. most people are going to be heading to Queensland for their Christmas holidays and doing these sort of adventurous things. Uh, same with New Zealand, and they'll be the warmer months. And um, you know, there's obviously mm. a lot of talk about COVID being not as um, bad in the summer months, although that seems to be not the case in Texas and other places in the US at the moment. So, but I think at least just as far as how we're dealing with it and what the future looks like. I think we'll have a really good idea in the next uh, four or five, maybe six months. And it's worth noting also that um, I, I think about fifteen percent from memory. I have to check, but there's a, there's a decent insider ownership stake here, which I think is really important with these um, businesses that could go either way. You know, sometimes a small number of decisions can actually impact the the, the very future, the very survival of the company. And it's comforting to know that the people making those decisions have a big financial incentive to make the right ones. Yeah, I guess <laughs> so, the, the main risk, I think, is if the COVID stuff impacts the business for longer than we hope, then yeah. there's, because the share price is so low, it, doesn't, it won't make a lot of sense at that point to raise capital from existing shareholders. It'll probably take someone to come in and just take a big stake in the business to get it through another... 12 or 18 months, and that, that way we could actually be highly diluted. I would expect that to happen, yes. So I would say if that should happen, the, the person would get the get the stock for sort of two cents or so. Um, very hard I'm to sure the current uh, new CEO, though, won't be, will be doing everything he can to avoid that because whatever payments he's going to get, uh, um, hmm. you know, probably going to struggle under that scenario. can't imagine any big bonuses getting paid for doing something like that. All right, let's carry on. Um, Mickey, what's your second stock? Uh, yeah, well, I'll keep I'll keep this one relatively quick. Um, it's another very small position myself. Um, it's a company called Adveritas, and uh, so this company. Give us the uh, code. Or should we should I probably give code. So Experience Code, uh, by the way, is um, EXP. Um, what's your company code, Mickey? Uh, AV One. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so Adveritas. Uh, has a has a software suite that um, detects fraud um, on on marketing campaigns, basically. So if you're a company and you've got to, um, you know, advertise by Google, uh, or you've got apps, you know, in the Play Store or um, um, in, in the iPhone uh, Apple Store, uh, you know, there's um, a problem, a recurrent problem, obviously, with fake clicks and also with uh, you know, fake downloads, fake impressions on your website. So uh, dealing with that as a marketer uh, is really challenging because it gives you the wrong picture of what's actually going on. Also, it actually inflates your expenses as well. Uh, and so this software, basically, there's an algorithm that detects even before that um, somebody has clicked on a link, uh, how likely it is to actually be um, fake. And it's it's quite accurate based on you know what they say about the product. Uh, so obviously, if it works, uh, it's you know potentially an, an enormous market. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so it is it is obviously a very early stage business, uh, and there's no no profits yet. It is making revenue. It does have some customers. I think it's got Jumbo actually is one customer that's um, that's signed on with them. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I guess there's um, a few other things going on here. You know, Mark McConnell, who's the um, fellow that was behind Citadel, uh, so he's um, a director on on this company and. Basically, as they've been raising money, uh, he's pretty much been chipping in at each stage along the way, as has the CEO, um, Matthew Raddy. So you're seeing a lot of insider buying at each successive stage of capital raising. And realistically, this isn't actually a business that should even be listed. This is probably a business that should be um, you know, backed by venture capital or something like that. It should still be private. Uh, but it's um, the, the thing is, it is listed, so they're kind of having to keep raising capital and that's what's really hurting the share price at the moment. Uh, but it's really encouraging just to see those insiders keep on buying uh, and going after the opportunity. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not a value stock. It's not it doesn't have earnings. Uh, and um, again, it's one of those ones where you know I can't personally vouch for the product, but um, you know if it works, then it could potentially be quite big. And having a small position, I don't mind really if it goes to zero. I'm happy to just. Uh, see what happens. Um, it also stops me from playing around with bigger positions in my portfolio that I don't want to touch. So, um, yeah. Do you know this one, Nathan? I do not. No, I've, I've never heard of this one either. So I don't have too much to add, except I'll, I will add that um, sometimes these, the sale, again, the sales process for security type software tends to go through the um, CTO in an organization. And I remember having a conversation once with um, a CTO and he was saying that, you know, we just get bombarded with all these security, um, safety, anti-hacking software providers all the time. And it's really hard. We can't really test the, the veracity of every single piece of software that we get bombarded with. Um, and I, I think I think sometimes these these type of, security-based software. I mean, every, we know everyone needs them, but it's actually really hard to get embedded with a business because everyone's got their own idea about how to make something secure and there's lots of solutions to the same problem. And getting access through that CTO is really, I think, proves to be difficult. I think that's why we've seen so many um, cyber security type businesses just not do all that well. I think the largest one in Australia is still like a $30 million business or something. You know, the, the largest cybersecurity firm is, is a tiny, tiny business. And I think that speaks volumes about how hard it is to actually break in. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if this is a cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's not. It's not really yeah, a cybersecurity yeah. thing. But yeah, I think that, but, uh, again, yeah, that, that sales route would be difficult. Yeah. No, for sure. I think it's always hard to get traction. and. Um, but if you can you know, get you... it, then then you're set. <laughs> well, Yeah. Uh, is this so, yeah. another? Is this another ten percent position? <laughs> no, it's a it's a tiny position. It's uh, it's very speculative, and once again, uh, absolutely would not recommend it to anybody. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the the dog agrees. I could hear him whining away. Uh, it turns out he was just hungry. He's been he's been mm. pretty quiet for the last five minutes. So, you just have to keep feeding him. That'll <laughs> like his owner running out of food. <laughs> Like his owner. Right, Nath. Nath, what do you got next? Yeah, so my second stock is SmartPay. As I said, I do own it. And 
the original investment case for this uh, going back, uh, it was late last year now, it was early this year, but the company has a, basically what it does in Australia is it sells terminals. So if you go into you know, a retailer and this is like the, re the same uh, terminals you'll see at a um, Coles or anywhere else and you just put your card up to, it sells those terminals and it offers the retailer a better price um, than what they what you can get through the bank. So that's one advantage. And the other thing it's done is it's changed its business model. So it doesn't just get um, a fee every time the terminal gets used, but it gets a clip of the sales as well. So to me, that's a, a really outstanding business model if it works. Now it has a, it's the Australian business, when I say it's fledgling, like it's really almost day one for that business. So it's, it's growing from, um, I think it's only grown from 2 million to 9 million or something recently. So it shows you how new the business is. And the deal was, uh, I think it must've been late last year, the share price had just been sitting there at 20 cents for ages. And then it made an announcement that it was selling its New Zealand business, which was much more mature, uh, for 20 cents. Um, basically, you were just the entire market cap of at the time of the stock was going to come back to you in the form of a dividend. And then you still had, and they're going to take some more of the proceeds that weren't paid out as a dividend to uh, support the Australian business, which they obviously see a huge opportunity in. So there's a couple of things I loved here. One, the CEO's built and sold a half a billion dollar business before. So I think he knows what he's doing. Two, I just loved, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this where a business or a board or chief executive has been willing to get rid of a existing business and put it all into uh, such a uh, early phase investment in another business. It just shows the absolute commitment that you need to for these businesses to win over the long term. So I, I really love that. And the second thing was, it was just a, it's like once that 20 cents uh, was declared in the dividend um, and that sold the New Zealand business, uh, it suggested that the stock was very cheap if, if the Australian business, I mean, if the Australian business does well, it was going to be worth way, way, way more than the New Zealand business. So potentially if things work out, the bull case works out, you're buying this thing very cheaply. Now, what happened was the New Zealand uh, regulatory body asked for more information in, I think it was March, uh, maybe it was April, and there was a cutoff date for, uh, I think it was Vodafone were buying the New Zealand business for them to walk away from the deal. And the New Zealand Regulatory Commission asked for an extra week, I think it was, or two weeks. And that just happened to be the time that Vodafone could walk away from the deal, which they did. And then um, SmartPay, which had already uh, got signed off from shareholders that they could uh, push forward with the, the deal um, and pay the dividend and whatnot. Uh, the regulatory approval came, but it just came about 10 days too late. And so at the moment, they still own the New Zealand business, but I still expect they're going to sell it. It's just a matter of when, in my view, and for how much. Uh, and in the meantime, to support the Australian business, they raised $2 million um, in a, a rights issue that was oversubscribed by, uh, I think they, were, they raised $2 million, but they got applications for 12 uh, which made perfect sense because the share price was 60-something cents and the rights issue was done at 41 cents, so it was just free money, if you like. And that's where the business sits today. So uh, it's very small. It's uh, in a competitive space, and um, you know there's lots of other companies like Tyro and Afterpay and whatever, all part of this new fintech and not necessarily doing the terminals, but all trying to look at that point of sale 
and how to click the ticket best but just think it's a really interesting stock and it's um i'm hopefully going to be a long-term holder for it yeah by the time you're listening to this we've probably published my review of tyro and if we haven't then hmm, spoilers but um tyro is the is one of the is the largest non-bank participant in this market so it's a very similar business model and these require a huge amount of scale but geez once you get them going they can be remarkably profitable with really good economics behind them but they i'm stunned by how much fixed costs and um and scale is needed to actually get the economics to work so i, I do wonder whether the australian business will ever really be profitable just looking at how long it's taken tyro to be profitable how many customers how much transaction volume they've had to run through um their opex is about 100 million uh, for tyro a year and you, you just need a very large um, um, processing volume to support such a large um cost base uh so smart pay is a big task ahead of them but i agree with what you said about management um they i think they owned about 50 percent of the market they're the largest provider in new zealand um, and they owned a huge part of the market. So they have actually, they know how to go out and capture merchants, um, although they did it with a business model that wasn't as good as the new model. Um, so they have sort of, they do have that history of doing it before. Um, yeah, interesting idea. They do, and the valuation is, is really attractive at the moment, far more attractive than Tyro, I might add. Mickey, what do you reckon? Have you seen this one before? Yeah, I've had a look at it. Um, oh, not not in the same detail as as Nathan has, and um, you know, I can see the case for it um, for sure. So I don't own it personally, but I can I can see why you would. So does the dog want to chime in? What does he reckon? <laughs> he's quiet on this one. Oh. Don't don't don't, don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, he's the Charlie Munger of the dog world. He has nothing to add. <laughs> but when he does, we all stop and listen, right? <laughs> I think we should just have a, a pets episode. We all bring on a pet or something, you know, just to... No? Okay. All right. We won't do that. That would mean right. bringing on my, my three-year-old, and we do uh, not want that. Okay. His favorite word at the moment is poo, so it would be a mistake. <laughs> um, let's do my last talk. So I was going to mention it's a business I've owned in the past. I don't own now, but it's gotten um, cheap and attractive once again. It's called GR Engineering. Um and, you know, I've been quite scathing of mining services businesses, and I generally think they are among the lousiest business models you can have on the ASX. You know, they're capital intensive, they're cyclical, they're competitive. Um, and as they grow, they suck in debt, and eventually all that, all that growth disappears, and they either implode or they start releasing a lot of cash. Um, and um, you have to be able to pick which ones won't implode to do well from this sector. But GR Engineering is a little bit different. It's run by four guys, four founders who um, collectively, well, all the insiders own about 45% of the stock. Um, and the four founders have actually started, this is their second um, go at doing a mining services business. And both times they've specialized in building mineral processing plants. Now, mineral processing plants are a vital piece of infrastructure for any mine. It's actually the key piece of equipment that um, monetizes dirt into something valuable. You know, so when you think about a mine, you've got a couple of key processes going on there. You have to actually dig ore out of the ground. You have to turn that ore into something usable. Then you have to get the that um, usable, saleable ore to where it needs to go. A key, all those three parts are quite important, but the key part really is that is that processing. The processing is what turns dirt into something useful. 
and the technical challenges and cost challenges of doing that um, are quite difficult. And having a business that has done this for a very long time and they have a tremendous record, uh, I was looking at some of the past projects they've done. It's a it's a who's who of great projects in Australia. You know, every every large miner has used them. Um, they've already their equipment is on some of the most famous uh, mine sites and gold mines and copper mines um, in the country. So technically, they're very very strong. Um, uh, I've I bought this a couple of years ago and sold it and made uh, really strong returns. And I caution that that is the idea here. This is not a business you you buy, sit and hold on and watch it compound for years. This is a cyclical stock where you buy when it's not so good and, and you sell when things are looking good again. So why is it cheap now? Well, it's cheap now because one of the byproducts of selling mineral processing plants to mines is that you're often selling to um, new mine developments, developments um, often new miners. And by the time you've built your plant, uh, there's no guarantee that the customer is going to be there to pay for it. And that's what's happened to them. They've had a couple of um, projects where they haven't been able to collect on. Um, and there's been a bit of um, a dispute with um, legal intervention required. Um, and that's happened over a couple of projects now. Um, and so the, the share shares have been hammered. Results don't look great at the moment. Um, but uh, fundamentally, this is a really strong business that knows how to do what it's doing. Um, and it's got a really good track record of doing it. Um, the reason why now is an interesting time also is because a lot of gold miners um, are now sitting on gigantic free cash flows. Some of these free cash flow yields are 20% on gold miners. Now, we're not in the game. We've written in the past about why we don't recommend gold miners. We're not going to do that now. But one way to take advantage of that is is a business like GR Engineering because they build processing plants and and once gold miners have cash um, and the gold price is you know, $2,000 an ounce, it's very attractive for miners to go out and build new projects uh, for which they need new plants. I think there's a really good uh, runway here of work. Um, this was the kind of circumstance I bought GR in the past. I bought it at the cusp um, of, a, of a really large gold bull market when gold prices were really high and, and miners were making a lot of money. And GR subsequently did really, really well. And, and I think we're at a similar sort of stage in the cycle now where that's a possible once again. Um, they also own a little oil and gas business as well that has been performing really well in the past, but obviously earnings from that are going to collapse. They service really high quality clients like Eni and Woodside uh, and Santos. Um, so there's a possibility it may not fall away completely because those companies still need to service their assets. But uh, I've kind of putting a zero next to that. Um, and so I think the, the future earnings are really dependent on what happens um, in this mineral processing segment. Again, look, I don't own it. It's a $130 million business. It's not tiny. They've been around for a long time. The founders, this is their second go at doing this. They've run this for a long time. They know exactly what they're doing. They're in a big part of the business. It carries no debt. Um, I think the downside here from here is pretty low. Um, the big trouble with this company is really that their customers tend to go bust a lot. Um, but if you cannot make money, there's no gold mine on, on earth who's not making money. So this is a, I think this is a, a nice um, lowish risk opportunity um, to take it to, if you want to get exposure to that sort of higher gold price, this is a better way to do it than in my view, than running off and buying a gold miner. You had me at, they go bust a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of baked into the model. So look, they don't build the processing plant and then wait to get paid. There's progress payments all the way. Um, 
it, it just means the accounting is really messy. So sometimes the cash flow looks terrific and at other times it really lags profit because profit depends on um, uh, contract accounting and cash flow comes in at stage stage payments. So you have to be comfortable knowing that there's always going to be a, a difference between those two sums, um, which is why because the, the, there's a lot of discretion in the accounting, that um, that ownership stake is really important. The fact that the insiders own so much of it and they've got a long history of doing it well is, is really important. Otherwise, I wouldn't go near a business like this. I think this is an exception to a generally lousy sector. Yeah. I guess it's basically like an infrastructure owner more so than the engineering side of the business based yeah. on kind of what you're saying, I guess. So, yeah, the difference yeah. between this... Uh, so I've called mineral, um, mineral resources an in infrastructure business in the past. And when I pitched it, Nathan, at, uh, at uh, $13, <laughs> now 23 um, <laughs> um, I mentioned that, that they collect fees on the volumes they process. So this is actually a similar sort of business, except they um, relinquish ownership of the asset after they constructed it. So they only really collect a, um, a build margin and they don't collect any ownership margin. Uh, I, I, if, if there was a way to make this business better, it would be actually to try and maintain ownership of the right. asset yeah. um, but i it's not really the way gold works gold miners like to keep keep a hold of their processing plants just for the record on mineral resources i feel like the price was 17 or something and then it went down to 13 at the bottom of the falls in <laughs> march or april and i didn't hear anything about it i bought it 14 i bought it 14 <laughs> all right now the um the other idea that we could do one day is to do a round robin of our the stocks that we own most in our portfolio, so our, our, our largest holdings, which I think would be an interesting thing. I'd love to know yours, Mickey, really. Um, uh, but we can consider that one day as well. If, well. if the gentlemen agree, then we might be able to do that. But for now, that, that is the end of our small cap special. Some interesting ideas. Um, I didn't know what they were going to be. I think no one, none of us sort of knew which stocks were going to be thrown up until they were. Um, so I'm going to go off and do some more work on some of them. Mickey, thanks for joining us. How are you doing um, in Melbourne? Everything okay? Oh, yeah, there? no. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's, well, you know, it's uh, getting yeah, to see is. a lot of my spare bedroom, which is, well, you know, spending a lot of extra time with the dog as well. So. He'd love it. You know, it's all, it's all going great. Uh, no. It's a, it's all right. Hopefully, we'll be through this hmm. uh, at some point. But it looks like you guys are heading in that. It's it's kind of what's you know it's kind of interesting watching you know the media up in up in Sydney you know and kind of oh you know there's a few cases you know but we we don't want to lock down because I feel like it's almost the same thing that happened here and it's just happening hmm. again. I don't I don't know if it's if you'll end up where we are. Although Gladys but, has been saying um, that she doesn't want to lock in and out all the time. So I, I yeah. did, I did agree with you up until that yesterday when she was, when I heard her say that. So I'm not sure yeah. we'll see a lockdown here. Yeah, well, um, I don't. I mean, but I, I guess if the cases get to where they were here, do you think you would, you know, they would lock down? Because like, I, I think maybe they probably would, wouldn't they? In my view is my that my life is um, one big lockdown anyway. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> poor, poor Nathan, lockdown all the time, permanent lockdown. Um, it, it sounds to me as though the Victorian government is far more comfortable with lockdowns and they seem to be very controlling at the best of times to be honest whereas the new south wales government is probably a bit more 
um, reluctant to lock down unless they really, really have to. Uh, mm. There is a big difference in, in cases as well, though. I mean, because I think we kind of started out along that path as well. And, no, I don't know. Even, even when we had our initial lockdown, the Victorian lockdown was always harder than anywhere else in the country. And you just listen to the paternalistic premier of Victoria, you know, telling everyone yeah. what to do, wagging his finger. Anyway, I'm getting on a, on my libertarian rant here. But, but I just think that, uh, yeah, it sounds to me as though Victoria is probably uh, harsher than New South Wales. So I, I'm, I'd be surprised if we locked down here. Well, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully for you guys. Um, well, Nate's always so... locked down. Just don't shut the Queensland border on us. <laughs> Let him make his seven times on Experience Co. Need people jumping out of planes. <laughs> um, we should send you on a field trip, actually, to do that and report back, Nathan. No, I can't actually, even that, get up a ladder. That's, that's no way I'm going up. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for, for joining us and for no bringing worries. along your ideas. And we'll, we'll have a go maybe one day, maybe, doing this um, the things we hold most of idea. Um, could be interesting. But for now, um, that's all from us. Thanks very much for listening. 